Well, hello and welcome to Life Church today. So glad that you could join us for this evening service here. Uh, my name is Dustin, one of the pastors here on staff, and uh, I oversee our Life Leadership College. It's our school of ministry for college students. We've got a few in this room tonight. Yes, the energy. Uh, I uh, get to work with our next-gen departments, that's birth through young adults. And uh, tonight I have the opportunity to bring the word before you and uh, have the honor of kicking off our brand new series called Chasing Carrots. It's an interesting title, isn't it? Chasing Carrots. It's a series that's all about the endless pursuit of more. The endless pursuit of more. We all have things in our life where uh, if we could just get this or just do this or fill in this blank with maybe a, a new car or a better job or uh, more money or a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a, a husband, a better husband, whatever it might be for you, that if we could get that, whatever that is, then it would make us feel feel more fulfilled or more happy or more excited or thrilled or life would just be better if we had these things. What is it for you? You don't have to answer out loud. It's not a turn to your neighbor type thing, but we've all got those things in our life that if we get it, that if it is in our life that we are better, at least we think that way. But we've all lived long enough and we've all experienced enough in our lives that we know that when we get that, whatever that is, that we don't quite feel fulfilled. That it doesn't satisfy us in the way that we thought that it should. And even if we do get that, it's only a temporary feeling. And if it does happen, then it only wakes up all of these other things in our life that we now need to be content. Chasing Carrots. That's what it's all about. The endless pursuit of more, the relentless pursuit of things that will never fully uh, fulfill us. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about some of these different things, the things that we endlessly chase. We're going to be talking about the stuff that we chase, the, the things, the stuff. We're going to be talking about comforts, approval. And today we're going to go to the book of Luke in the New Testament, Luke chapter 10. And we're going to talk about chasing perfectionism. Chasing perfectionism. So as you turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 10, I'll kind of let you know a little bit of my story and my connection to the topic today. Uh, it was my second semester of college, and uh, up until that point, I had gotten all A's in my classes. I know that's annoying, whatever, but uh, I, I had gotten all A's, and then I had a class that I knew was going to be difficult. It was the professor's first time teaching the class. He had just moved into the state from out of state. His family was still out of the state, so he was kind of frazzled all semester long. It was a difficult semester for him. It was a difficult semester for me, but I studied and worked hard all the way up until the final exam, and I saw in my grades that I had a B in the class. Well, I wanted to get that A, right? So I knew, I did the math, I knew that I had to get a 96 on my final exam to be able to pull my grade up into the A territory. It was that close. Uh, so in the nights leading up to the exam, I studied and I studied and I studied, stayed up late. Day of the exam came, I took the exam and I got the grade. I, I did what I, what I sought out to do and I made the grade, brought my overall average back up into the A territory, or so I thought. A few days later, when I received my final grades for the semester, was going through and saying kind of A, 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 I still had a B for that class. 
And so again, look, I know for teachers in this room, like I apologize for being a student that you hate because like I took that, that grade and I went to my professor's office, knocked on the door, walked in. I was polite. I promise you I was polite. But I was like, can you explain this to me, good sir? And uh, he, pulled up, he pulled up the grades on, on his computer and he showed me, look, the test grades looked right. The assignment grades looked right. But at the very end of all of that, there was another thing that I'd never seen before. It was a participation grade, a completely opinionated, arbitrary, abstract grade that he made up for me because he thought that I didn't participate enough in the class. And so he gave me a low enough grade that pulled, after I pulled it up to an A, that pulled it back down into a B. In fact, it was like an 893 and I just needed an 89.5 to bump it up to an A. And I asked him there, is there anything that I could do? Could I do some makeup work? Can I, whatever, can I retake the test? Can I participate? Here I am, let's participate. But he wouldn't let me do anything to be able to bring that grade back up to an A. In fact, my professor looked at me and he said, don't worry, this is only your second semester. You have many more semesters before you graduate. This won't be your last B. Yeah, yeah. Little did he know what he just did. <laughs> I, from that moment forward, decided every class, every semester, no matter what, because of that professor, I was going to prove him wrong and I was going to make straight A's. It was good because it unleashed within me this desire to, 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 to do, 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 to be perfect, perfect, perfect in all of my classes, to get all of those grades. And on graduation day, I may or may not have sent that professor a copy of my complete and final transcript with all A's and one single B in his class, circle highlighted and underlined so that he could see what he had done to me. Still today, when I see him, I have to pray that God would help me forgive him for ruining my life. I, I understand that I've got a problem. I understand that I had a problem then and I have a problem now. I'm here to admit to you today, I am a type A highly organized, opposite of relaxed kind of person, which you could imagine works really well at my home with my wife, who is kind of more type B, easygoing, go with the flow. I, I, I don't know if I've ever used the phrase go with the flow before. I've never faced anything in life where I'm like, you know what, we just need to go with the flow. Like that's not something that I've ever said, not something that I've thought of before. But the interesting thing here is that this is not a type A or type B thing. It's an everybody thing. In your own way, and in my own way, I just admitted it to you today, in my own way, in your own way, we all experience and deal with this elusive desire to be perfect. We want a Pinterest-worthy home. We want Instagram-worthy looks. We, for you, the, the pursuit might be for perfect grades, or like it was for me, or a perfect career, a perfect family, a perfect image, and it is exhausting because no matter how hard we try, we can never quite get there. And every time we get close, the carrot just moves a little bit further ahead. Tonight, I want us to look at a familiar story from scripture, one that you've probably heard before to help us better understand and, com uh, and combat our perfectionistic nature. It's a story of two sisters that are hosting a dinner party for Jesus. And the two sisters have very different approaches to hosting him. 
as we read this, this story, this brief story, pay attention, and I want you to try to identify yourself with one of these sisters. Which one do you more accurately align with? Who are you more like in this story? Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. All right, so Martha's running around here trying to make sure everything is perfect for their guest. Imagine, you've had guests come over to your house before, and uh, like the, the preparation that goes in. Think about if your boss comes over to, or if Pastor Aaron comes over to your house. Like, all the more. Think about now, if Jesus comes to your house, your house is going to be spotless. You're going to be working to make sure that it's completely clean. Jesus is coming to your house. Martha gets it, in my opinion at least. Martha's doing something about it. But look how Jesus responds. Verse 41. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. By the way, if you ever say my name twice, I know that like you're disparaging me. I'm in trouble, whatever. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. Amen. But few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. That's the narrative. That's the story. That's the story of Martha and Mary hosting Jesus. And from this story, I want to tonight share with you two extremely important truths about our endless pursuit of perfectionism. And the first one is this, number one, from this story, we must choose people over perfection. We must choose people over perfection. How many of you, be honest, are like Martha in the story? Would you just raise your hand if you're like Martha, you've got to do something, the work needs to be done. Maybe type A, like me, like Martha, you got to get something done. People are coming over, you're going to be working, all right? A few of you being honest tonight. That's 100% me. There's work that needs to be done. Did you remember to make the tea? Have you put on the music? Does everybody have assigned seatings? Did you clean this room? Did you clean this room? Are the candles lit? All of those things. You got the list. People are coming over. We have to make it look perfect. Yet Jesus looks to Martha, he looks to you, he looks to me, and he says, Martha, stop worrying about these things. That's what they are. They're just, they're just things, and there's only one thing that matters. Martha, choose people over perfection. How often in our lives do we get so worked up over things that don't actually really matter? Like things that aren't going to last, things that no one is actually going to remember, and things that some people might not even notice in the moment. I know that we have done things before thinking that, oh, they're really going to like this, and they don't even notice that it happened. Don't even notice that we set the table like that. Don't even notice that we were creative or thoughtful in that way. Scripture tells us that all the things of this world are going to pass away, that there's an expiration date, that they all, all are going to fade away. However, people who know God and do his will last forever. So what do you want to put your stock in? Things that are temporary or people that are eternal. Whenever we have guests at our home for a dinner or for a life group, my wife and I, we clean the house. Uh, my wife cleans the house. I help 
tidy things I do, and uh, I, I don't know if any of you do this, but we're really good at cleaning the rooms that people are going to be in, you know what I'm saying? And then the rooms that, we, uh, that people aren't going to be in, we stuff everything else in there, kind of lock the door. You're not allowed off limits of that room. Like we've got closets in our house that if you open them, you might get like not trampled by boxes that are falling out. There's one in particular closet that a Christmas tree is probably going to fall out and hit you. Like that's, that's actually what's happening at our house. Sometimes, even if everything looks good on the outside, but if you open the closet or the hidden rooms of, of the house, other things come out. On the outside, you're creating the illusion that everything is perfect, that nothing is wrong, that everything is just fine. Just don't open the closet. Everything's good. Oh no, life's great. Thank you, brother, sister. Yes, everything's really good, really good. Don't go in that room. Like that's actually what happens in our life where perfection is just an illusion. It's a covering often of our deepest fears and insecurities. We clean up the house so you don't go to the closet and see our inadequacies or our shame or our fear of rejection or our fear of failure or fear of intimacy or whatever it might be for you. Sometimes we just need to be okay with not being okay. It's perfectly okay to not be perfectly okay. So let me clear this up just a little bit. This is not an excuse to be sloppy or to not care or to not try. Some of you are like, hey, we, see, I told you we don't have to clean the house. Like, that's not necessarily what I'm saying. I think if Mary, instead of being at the feet of Jesus, was on her third nap and that she was just refusing to help out around the house, she had dirtied the dishes, but she's not going to clean them, I think the conversation would have gone a little bit differently here. Likewise, Martha's desire to actually do things and work for her guest that was coming over is not necessarily a bad desire. It's just that her heart wasn't set on the thing that mattered most. An author by the name of John Bloom, he makes this distinction. He says, what we call perfectionism is not the same as the pursuit of excellence, though sometimes the lines can blur. When we pursue excellence, we're, we're determined to do something as well as possible within a given set of talent, resources, and time limits. But perfectionism, listen, is a pride-based or a fear-based compulsion that either fuels our obsessive fixation on doing something perfectly or paralyzes us from acting at all. It's either fear-based or pride-based. So in your life, pursue excellence. Try to do things to the best of your ability. You can attain excellence in many scenarios in your life, but when you are seeking to be perfect, it is always either a pride thing or a fear thing, and neither are good things because they are both internally focused when you and I are called to be externally focused on how others are and how God is in our life. Choose people over the illusion of perfection. That's number one. Number two, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Number two, the second truth that we find here in this story is that we have the ability to choose a perfect kind of love over perfect performance. Choose love over performance. While Martha was in the kitchen pulling the last of the cheese curds out of the deep fryer, where was Mary? 
Where was Mary? Look, look there in verse 39. Remind yourself, where, where was Mary? It says, Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. Again, Martha was not doing something inherently sinful or wrong or evil. She wasn't in there poisoning the cheese curds. Like she was in there preparing the supper. She was preparing the table. She was working for the Lord. And on, likewise, it wasn't just Mary was being a sweet little angel sitting there. No, Martha was doing something good. Mary was doing something better. Instead of choosing perfect performance, Mary was at the feet of Jesus choosing perfect love. Now, the Bible actually does talk about being perfect. And it's, it's pretty clear. I don't know if you've read it before. Like I'm up here today trying to tell you, hey, don't strive necessarily for perfectionism. You're never going to get there. Strive for excellence. Don't strive for perfectionism. But then in Matthew 5:48, Jesus very clearly says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Can't really twist that and make it say something else, can you? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. So there it is. I knew it. Like it gives me allowance to be able to be the uh, uh, terrible person I am to send my professor still 10 years later, my, my transcript to remind him what he did to me. No, that's not what it's saying here, actually. Even here, the context surrounding this command is all about love, not performance. Look, I, I want you to sh see the broader uh, concept of what's going on here in Matthew chapter 5, starting verse 43. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, even, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And then in verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. So, you can see in these verses that Jesus isn't talking about perfect performance. He is talking about being perfected in love. I know we don't do this too often, but uh, the, the word here for be perfect, perfect, is the Greek word teleos, teleos. Uh, it, it, it doesn't mean, it, it's not a perfection based on performance. It's actually a word that kind of means uh, matured in or uh, grown in to be made complete. It's the same word that Jesus actually used on the cross when he said it is finished. It is complete. It, it, it is done. It is accomplished. Here in Matthew 5, when he's saying be perfect like God, he's not saying be perfect in the performance and in the things that you do. Jesus was saying you have been taught to love your friends and hate your enemies. I'm telling you to love everybody, to, to love freely, to love as you've been loved, to be perfect, not in how you act, but in how you love, to grow in that, to be made mature in that. It's not that you have to have perfect perfection in performance. It's not that you have to be the perfect husband or that you have to be the perfect wife or you have to have the perfect looks or the perfect grades, thank God. But in growing in that perfect love, you will become more like your heavenly father. Be perfect in love. Now that I am a decade out from graduating from college, and I've learned to forgive my great, kind, generous, benevolent professor, I'm finally understanding in my life that 
the root of my desire to be perfect is really actually fear-based. Like if I could just be honest with you for a moment, my desire and pursuits for perfection is based in a fear of disappointing others. I don't want, I don't want to disappoint the, the people that I'm close to. I don't want to disappoint the people that I'm doing life with. I don't want to disappoint my wife. I don't want to disappoint the, the students that I lead. I don't want to disappoint the people that I work with. I don't want to disappoint my boss that also happens to be my pastor. Think about the pressures there. Like, I don't want to disappoint the people that I am around. I'm even fine at times with disappointing myself, I don't want to do that, but I would much rather disappoint myself than disappoint someone else. So I am constantly having to battle against this internal fear that I might disappoint other people, that I might disappoint the people that matter most to me. And so, since I do not want to disappoint others, I mask that fear with performance, with Work harder, do better, strive, strive for perfection, be successful. If I'm doing those things, then people might not be disappointed in how messed up I am or how a stupid mistake that I made or, or whatever the case might be. They're not going to be focused on those things because look at me, I'm performing, right? Even, even when I come up here infrequently to, to preach, I mean, all of that creeps back up. Like I have to fight against, like, how did I do? Like, did people like me? Who's posting on Facebook? Who's liking the video? Are there enough shares? All of that is something that I still have to combat because the, the internal me, the fleshly me wants to perform, perform, perform. And then people will see that and people will like that version of me. And that will keep their attention away from the disappointments that I might have or be at times. But I'm realizing more and more that that's not my calling. And that's, that's not your calling. Our calling is not to convince people how good we are. Our calling is to convince people how good God is. It's not about our performance. It's all about Jesus's performance, his life, death, and resurrection, what he's doing even in the here and now. In our pursuit, this is what it is. It's our pursuit of perfectionism versus Jesus's free gift of grace. And those are two totally different things. Let me show you the difference, all right? Perfectionism focuses on what I am able to do. Grace focuses on what Jesus has already done. Perfectionism is all about me. It's internal, me, me, me. Grace is not about me at all. It's all about Jesus. Perfectionism says, if I obey, God will love me. But grace says, because God loves me, I can obey. Perfectionism is all about trying to win God's approval by the things that I do, the the way that I perform. Grace is all about living from and out of God's approval. But there's nothing that I can do that will make him love me any more or any less. He's already approved of me. That's grace. That's grace over perfectionism. Perfectionism is self-centered. Grace is God-centered. So let me help you understand how much God loves you. 
How many of you have children in this room? Any age, how many of you have children? All right, the vast majority of you have children. Do you remember when uh, they first learned to walk? Were you, were you there or at least the first few steps, maybe a, a, couple, a day after you got back on your business trip, whatever it was, the first time that you saw your children walk? I don't have any children yet. Uh, uh, I have a bunny and she's been walking for a long time. But um, just yesterday, uh, I got to see my niece walk for the very first time. And if you remember uh, what, what this is all about, like they, uh, the, uh, we were on FaceTime, we weren't with them, we were on FaceTime and uh, my wife's sister uh, was holding the phone, letting us watch uh, the, the kid and um, she was doing that thing where you steal a toy from a baby and you walk across the room and you're like, come get your toy I just stole, right? And then they look at you and start trying to, to walk. It's, it's, and uh, this is what we watch and she, she kind of, with her, chubby legs takes the first few steps and then they wobble and then she crashes to the floor. In that moment, do you know what we did not do? We did not collectively boo because she fell down. We did not hang up the phone and walk away saying, I am very disappointed in her. I expected better. Of course not. We celebrated every step that she took. We cheered. We had that annoying high voice. It's like, oh, come on, you can do it. You know, that thing um, that we all do, but hate when other people do it. We were all about that every step of the way as she was doing the drunk Frankenstein, just trying to walk towards the phone. It was absolutely adorable. And we, we cheered and we celebrated we, we, because even when she fell, we said, get back up. You can do this. We were ecstatic at every step that she did take. Our father in heaven is not withdrawing his love from you whenever you fall short. He is cheering you on when you get it right. He's celebrating and he's, he's not upset or frustrated or walking away from you when you fall. He knows that in your humanity, in your sinfulness, that you are going to mess up at times. The key is, are you going to get back up and keep walking towards him? God has a deep abiding love for you that nothing in this world can take away. And, and the, the amazing thing is, is that God gives us a whole list of people in the Bible. He goes at great, to great lengths to show us the imperfect heroes of the Bible. To show us that these people do great things, but then they're also miserable failures at times as well, yet God still uses them. I mean, in the Old Testament, we've got Abraham, the great model of faith. He had his Hagar episode, for those of you that remember. Moses, even. He had his disqualifying rock incident where he did the wrong thing and struck it in anger. David, King David, a man after God's own heart, had his Bathsheba affair. Even in the New Testament, we've got Paul who had a sordid past and a quick temper. Peter denied knowing Jesus even while he was being crucified. Thomas doubted the resurrection of Jesus. A whole host of people, Old Testament and New. God knows our perfectionistic temptations and tendencies. And so he fills the Bible with stories of his amazing and phenomenally patient grace towards sinners who continue to imperfectly fight with, stumble in their sin, yet continue to stand up and continue to keep walking along their earthly journeys. The same is true for you and me. 
God loves you unconditionally. And no amount of performance is going to make him love you any more or any less. Because love is not something he does. Love is who he is. For many of us tonight, we can, maybe for the first time in a long time, we can breathe and relax and be rest assured that we don't have to We don't have to be perfect in the here and now. In fact, we can't. It's a pointless pursuit. We can strive for excellence, but more than that, we can love God, love others, choose love over performance, and we can choose people over perfection. Let's bow our heads all around the room. I want to pray for you tonight. God, help us to embrace your grace and to show your love. Our mission here is not to make everybody look at us as something impressive. It's what clowns do. God, instead, we are to be people who reflect you. We are image bearers so that when people see us, they see you. So God, I pray that tonight you would reveal the areas that we are covering up and that we are creating, and the areas where we are creating illusions that, that we are perfect. Even as everybody's just kind of in this moment, no one's looking around this room, I just wonder, are, are there people maybe like me that I can pray for tonight that's just saying, hey, I, yeah, I, that's something that I've been struggling with that I just, day in and day out, it's, it's, a, it's an internal fear-based or pride-based issue that I am just, fighting for and striving for this perfectionism, that I just need God's strength and God's help to be able to get through and over this and to rely on him and not my own ability. If there's anyone in this room, would you just slip your hand up for just a moment so I can know who I'm praying with? Yeah, yeah, all over the room, all over the room. God, we we just come before you and we say, here we are, (laughs) you know, the rooms that are clean in our house and the rooms that are dirty. You know the closets that we don't want anybody to walk in and God, we bear them all to you tonight. God, I pray for everyone that raised their hands that you would change our standards, that that we would not operate out of fear or out of pride, but out of love. God, I pray that you would forgive us for trying to accomplish what you already did that we wouldn't rely on our own strength or our own ability or our own merits, but we would rely on your grace and your grace alone. Help us today to choose people over perfection, love over performance, so that we can truly become who you've created us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.